Despite our deep desire to feel a sense of belonging, many of us feel isolated. The rise of technology and modern workplaces have led people to be even more disconnected, even as we remain constantly plugged in. Today on the program, we welcome Christine Porath, whose research shows as our human interactions have decreased, so too have our happiness levels. This is sparking a crisis in mental health that will have repercussions for years, leaving people feeling lonelier in organizations less productive and less profitable. What Christine has discovered in her research is that leaders, organizations, and managers of all stripes may recognize how to implement the cure, community, and civility. On this episode of The Burleson Box, Christine and I talk about how to deal with unruly customers, the six characteristics of companies and leaders that best build community, how to unleash your people and embrace radical candor. We share a few great book recommendations, some wonderful case studies, examples, and stories from Cisco, Marriott, The Motley Fool, and even the world of improv comedy at Second City. I can't wait to share today's episode with you, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. When's the last time you evaluated your credit card processing statement? Our partners at Stacks are offering a free savings analysis for our listeners, where they will actually take your merchant statement with your current processor and show you where you're overpaying. Stacks has saved orthodontics practices over 40% per month on payment processing costs. So don't wait. Get your free savings analysis today and see how much you're overpaying for your credit card processing. Go to stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars to schedule your savings analysis today. Plus, as a special offer for our podcast listeners, if you sign up today, you can get your first two months of payments processing costs waived from Stacks. Once again, that's stackspayments.com forward slash Burleson dash seminars. Stop overpaying. Start saving. Christine, we're so honored to have you here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I first came across your research, I think, in the Harvard Business Review, maybe the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. You've been publishing all of them. <laughs> but you've been studying what we call incivility long before the pandemic. Can you kind of walk listeners through your background and, and where you are now with your profession? Sure. So I got interested in this topic, unfortunately, really because of my dad's work. And he had a health scare uh, as a result of, you know, working for two toxic bosses for a long period of time. And, you know, I didn't really know that that happened to a lot of people. I thought he was an unlucky soul. Uh, But it wasn't, it was about a year and a half later that I scored what I thought was my dream job working in sports management. And I saw it happen daily. And I realized, wow, this seems like a huge problem and it affects people in really profound ways, particularly if it's repeated or they're around it, witnessing it. And I just thought about how we spend a lot of time at work and I thought we could and should do better if possible. And so it just set me on a path to go back to graduate school then and study the consequences of, you know, incivility or bad behavior between two people and, and then also try to document along the way I got interested in, okay, like, 
given that we've covered a ton of costs and rationale for why this matters, you know, what do we do about it? And better yet, like, what are the effects of the positive side of things, like creating respectful environments or, you know, thriving environments. And uh, so it's, it's been a lot of fun in the last couple of decades studying this topic. Uh, I've, you know, learned a lot from people that are willing to not only share their experiences, but, but also, you know, leaders and organizations that allow me to learn from them. Yeah, I love that you're, I was reading your, the first book that I read of yours is called Mastering Civility. And uh, for the listeners, I think they should go get both books. We're talking about your latest book, Mastering Community. And I feel like every day during the pandemic, there was someone going viral for just behaving, (laughs) whether it was on a berating a barista and so i kind of saw your name everywhere i think i I didn't pick up a newspaper without reading your research so can you maybe walk us through some of the some of the data sets so for the geeks like me who want to who want to kind of geek out on you know how does this drive retention how does it drive employee satisfaction and and in performance what what did your research show yeah, so really early on uh, from when we first started this research, we surveyed people working in all different industries. This was business school alumni. And what we asked them was to report one incident where they treated were treated rudely, disrespectfully or insensitively. And then they responded about, you know, what happened and how they responded. And what we found is that it totally pulled people off track. So 80% of people lost time worrying about the incident, often for very long periods after time, which was kind of a surprise to us in some ways. Um, 66% reported decreasing efforts intentionally. 12% left their workplace uh, as a result of this incident, although the vast majority never reported it. So, you know, leaders weren't making the connection and or doing anything about it for the most part. Um, Over time, we've done a lot of experiments. So what happens when people you know, just get one comment, you know, it's like a quick touch point, they feel berated, or they feel, you know, like they were made small in some way. And uh, what we found is that those that experience incivility, they tend to perform much worse, Uh, they are far less creative. Uh, It just, again, pulls them off track, they're not able to focus nearly as well. Then we studied witnesses. And it was uh, amazing, in some ways that they, they're effects were just as strong, if not stronger, in the sense of being pulled off track. So their performance really plummeted, uh, creativity fell, witnesses were three times less likely to help anyone, not just the person that was rude. So people, I think, tend to become much more self-focused, much less other-focused. Over the course of time, we've also studied it, like how does this ripple in networks that you may work with or in your personal life? And what we find is, unfortunately, that incivility is like a virus and it spreads um, and you can catch it anywhere. So that's true at work, online, uh, in your communities kind of thing. Uh, We've studied a lot uh, about the effects on people's cognitive performance. And so we're learning more about that. Uh, Just again, like it doesn't take much is the short of it. So if you, you know, read rude words on social media, uh, chances are you're not thinking about how that may affect you uh, then or later in the day. But what we find is that, you know, working memory operates much slower People make a lot more errors. That's why it's so relevant in uh, areas like yours with healthcare, 
Uh, and it's just uh, something that we continue to learn about uh, just how powerful um, a word or, you know, you, you can get primed very easily, I guess is, is part of the point. Yeah, I want to highlight for the listeners that the, the study I'm referencing will, will include in the show notes. That, that was really broad, right? I want to say it was like over mm -hmm. 20,000 employees. Is that correct? It was a very large study. Yeah. So that was actually not necessarily focused on incivility. We were trying to study um, work and life. This was with Tony Schwartz. Uh, but it one of the kind of nice messages that came out of that was the leader behavior that affects people most across a broad range of outcomes is actually respect. Like people desperately want to feel respected and by, especially by leaders. And uh, it matters so much in terms of health, focus, retention, engagement, a sense of thriving at work. So uh, I, I think that, you know, that's something I always try to teach with <laughs> because it just kind of puts it in perspective as to how important feeling, you know, valued, heard, seen, uh, those things really matter. And it's, I want, I want to say there's kind of two paths here, because it's not just as a leader of an organization listening to this that might have employees or, or teammates. It's, it's also the frontline workers and, and how they're treated by your customers, right? Yeah. So this most recent study was actually uh, 2000 people uh, globally. And primarily we were asking about witnessing it, uh, particularly as customers, like, you know, what, what are they seeing on the front lines? And, and also what are people experiencing on the front lines? And unfortunately, there's a, a trend, you mentioned it earlier, which is, you know, this has gotten a lot worse, uh, specifically in the last few years. So, you know, I think it was roughly like 50% were witnessing it once a month, a couple decades ago, and then it grew to, you know, up to 55%, then 60, now we're at like 76% are witnessing it. Wow. Wow. So it's um, no surprise for the reason you mentioned, uh, you know, people are stressed out, there's a ton of negativity, we're, you know, feeling stretched, we're feeling um, tense, annoyed, you know, it, it, this ties to the number one reason why, we see incivility, which is people feel uh, overwhelmed or stressed. And so I, I suppose it shouldn't be a surprise to us, but the numbers are pretty overwhelming. Yeah, that's what I took away from the book and from the, the many articles I've read of yours. I, you know, I, I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts. I've worked in a lot of jobs. I've had some great bosses. I've had some not so great bosses in <laughs> uh, some companies where I felt like there was a strong mission and I kind of knew why I was there and others where I had no idea why I was there. So I think it was probably a little bit of life having a lot of weird, odd jobs in college. But what do you say to someone listening who goes, okay, I don't know how often we're getting feedback from our frontline employees. I don't know if we have an intentional program to seek that out. Like you kind of, in my gut, I'm kind of going, uh-oh, are, are we one of these organizations that's not paying attention? And could we have, like you said, a lot of the employees that suffer these effects don't re they don't tell anyone they just kind of quietly quit yeah I, I think there's a lot of opportunities to collect this data you know pretty painlessly uh, for both parties uh, nowadays we see a lot of pulse surveys so you know quick you know question few questions that can go out and be answered on someone's phone um, within seconds kind of thing and and that allows you to at least get a sense of how people are doing and you know if you have a larger 
organization or healthcare system, you can also trace where the hotspots are, so to speak, and where people are really suffering, or are they certain positions, are there certain demographics affected, Um, that kind of thing uh, is pretty helpful in terms of, you know, kind of taking a deeper dive into the data. I think, you know, if you're a leader and you have the opportunity, checking in with people, especially these days, is so important. So making time for these touch points even to say, how are you doing? How has it been? I think that, you know, personal touch goes a long way. But in most places, this is probably done with surveys. Uh, You know, one of the programs that I really was impressed by was Love and Loathe at Cisco. And that was a weekly survey that went out. They started this well before the pandemic, but where, you know, people answered short series of questions. And then one thing they loved, one thing they loathed about the last week, but their manager got the data, HR had access to it. And so the idea was that the manager had a sense of how that person was doing what they were experiencing and could step in, you know, quickly to support them and or gather support and resources for the person as um, needed. And so I think that idea of being much more in touch with people's employees, especially since there's so much suffering in the world right now uh, and people's mental health is, you know, has took a hit, basically. And uh, unfortunately, I think it's probably going to be some time before people dig out of that. And so I I think feedback is a gift. And if you create more opportunities for it and encourage it uh, and are vulnerable as a leader, by the way, you know, about how things are affecting you. You know, we have some, I have some wonderful healthcare examples in my world uh, that are, you know, kind of leading the charge on this. And so I love that. And I think that there are plenty of good examples to learn from. But healthcare, as you mentioned, like frontline employees, I think that there's no tougher arena right now than that. Yeah. I think at the time of this recording, there's 7,000 or so nurses in New York City that are on strike or, or were last week. Because it's it's just relentless, right? It's been a three year just an incredible slog of just you know not enough providers, too many patients, and um, often a system that takes those individuals for granted. And um, I love that a case study in the book uh, on Cisco. I, you, just to highlight again, it was it was every week I think, right? That they were yeah, serving. yeah. yeah. I was going to ask if that's too frequent. I, I feel like that was a good. Maybe we stole the idea from them or we got it from someone smarter than me, but we did a a weekly self-assessment with employees and uh, it was amazing. Things you just never knew were driving them crazy. I've shared this story with our our listeners have probably heard this, but we had an individual who was having a really rough week and and we got her assessment on Friday and should have should have given it on Monday, I guess, that week. She she hated driving in the snow. It really made her stressed out. So we never knew that. And then we paired her up with someone who didn't mind driving in the snow who lived close by and and it's, her her rating went immediately from a one to a ten on kind of how, you know, happy and productive did you feel this week? And would have never known had she not self-reported. So I love that. Uh, wow, example. that's a great example. Yeah, you just never know. Uh, so, uh, but I do think, like to your point, a leader encouraging that and how it's going to make a difference with a story like the one that you just mentioned is really goes a long way. It's the same with three hundred and sixty feedback. You know, it. it personalizing it, um, I think really helps. So I love that. Yeah. Your book is a wonderful guide. Uh, I, I love books like this because you can 
take it and put it to work. In the first section of the book, you give six characteristics, I think, that I would say companies that are getting this right, or at least putting the work, uh, implementing the toolkit. Uh, I want to maybe dig into some of those on, uh, and maybe share some examples. There's some wonderful examples in the book of Cisco, Southwest Airlines, some other really neat companies that I think have done have done a great job with, um, you know, building and sustaining a good community with their workforce. Um, I'm curious what you have to say about unleashing people. I feel like that'd be a good topic for our members who tend to be perfectionists as dentists and doctors <laughs> and, and don't like to delegate or unleash, you know, their team. Can we, can we start there? Sure. Uh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, just a term that really gets at the messages, give people choice in some way, you know, um, otherwise described as autonomy, but, you know, people really have three fundamental needs that lead to growth and that's, you know, choice, um, competence, uh, and community or connection. And so, you know, this idea of choice, I think one way that a friend taught me at Joe McCannon, who's in the book is, you know, they would talk about how can I get these people to do what I want, like moving from that to how can I help these people do what they want to do. Um, now that can take a variety of forms. Uh, you know, one big way that it seems to be showing up is providing people more flexibility if possible in their role. Uh, not always option in healthcare necessarily, but you know, if there's some flexibility or depending on shifts and things like that, but um, you know, part of it is providing discretion around the edges of, you know, what they can do and how they can own things. I think uh, the, part that I liked that I learned about leaders is you need to focus on what's called the backbone role, which is, it doesn't mean that you are, you know, giving people full, you know, opportunity to do whatever they want, but kind of, you know, your job is to bring people together, to create connections among them, provide any data that they might need, and then support their, the group's learning, communicating, organizing. So, um, your role is important. Uh, you know, Phil Jackson, who is someone else I wrote about in, in this book, I liked, he called himself the invisible leader is what he wanted to be. Um, and you can think about how that might show up in various points of your day or, you know, your, uh, role. And so that's the general idea. Uh, but you know, clarifying what's essential, you know, making sure your people are ready for change. Like you mentioned, Southwest Airlines, you know, there's a lot that can go awry <laughs> as we've seen recently. So like, how do you, you know, what's within limits around what your employees can do to service patients, care, support caregivers, let's say, what have you. And, you, you know, using data, uh, we talked about stories a bit already, but storytelling is an amazing way to convey culture and to change culture, um, but also to unleash, you know, like what's okay and what was valued about a way someone handled something. Um, and then, you know, ideally a leader with unleashing is framing mistakes as learning opportunities. And so, you know, it's not probably just the person that learns from it, but perhaps the team or the organization. So um, I don't know, we can run with anything and unleashing that you want to, but that's broad strokes. I, I feel like it's about choice and giving people um, some discretion and opportunities to kind of, you know, take control of 
parts of their job or parts of timing of their job, things like that. Yeah, no, it's perfect. I just think uh, as healthcare providers, we, you know, we kind of become like professional test takers in school, and <laughs> and we we, we kind of we we get out of school and we realize, okay, like all the things they did to 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 help you become a doctor are really poorly served in managing people on this kind of perfection. I've got to pass every test. I've got to get everything right. And so I see a lot of doctors struggle with that. And I love that part of the book. Um, it dovetails, I think nicely into another principle, which is uh, practicing radical candor. And mm -hmm. I, I love that it's in the book. I love that strong leaders like Brene Brown and Sheryl Sandberg have really pushed this because again, it's not what I don't feel like it was what I learned from parents or grandparents on, you know, kind of be quiet, spoke only speak unless spoken to kind of <laughs> stuff. And uh, you give some really cool examples. One of them is Kim Scott and how she worked with Second City, a, a company I love. Every time I'm in Chicago, we go. Uh, I just got a kick out of that. I don't know if you have any thoughts on radical candor for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate the feedback. It's helpful, actually. Um, yeah, I I just it's so important to you know. Oftentimes, I'm speaking or you know, teaching on respect and culture. And over the years, I rarely teach or mention respect without talking about feedback and radical candor and how important it is, in part because people lack self-awareness. And so they don't realize how they're affecting people in a negative way. I mean, that's, I think, the biggest reason, you know, for how much disrespect and rudeness is out there. Um, it's not people trying to be jerks. So this idea of improving self-awareness, I think if you can get people to speak rat with radical candor, this idea of I care personally. And so to me, that's the respect part. Like you've planted the seeds, you've you know done small things, acknowledging people, listening to them, saying hello, asking how you can help, you know, those kind of things are fantastic. And so they're not huge investments, but if you show that you care personally, her point is challenged directly. And so she has this great two by two where those are, you know, that's the sweet spot. You care personally, you challenge directly. And so I think when I talk about civility, one thing that's important is it's not all just nice and fluffy, you know, that there's allowed to be criticism and disagreements and all of that. In fact, we want that, especially if you're striving for innovation or, you know, making sure that you're not, oh, you know, kind of making mistakes around patient care and things like that. You need people pointing out potential issues or catching potential issues, especially if they have less status, that they're comfortable speaking up. So this idea of radical candor, I think, is is really crucial in any industry or for anyone that wants to improve. And I think the way that I often talk about it, it's almost like coaching others, you know, because... I think that puts hopefully a positive spin on it. Like we're just all trying to raise each other's game. And so part of that is to be radically candid about it. <laughs> and so I've just learned a lot. I love Kim Scott's book video. Um, I'm friends with Kelly Leonard at second city have been for years. And so it's it, I immediately, when I saw what they were doing together, I was like, that's so cool. And so, um, you know, I was excited to, you know, learn more about their partnership, but also, you know, they put me in touch with Matt Daly, who I told his story at the beginning of that chapter, which is, you know, a young manager who failed because that radical candor is really hard. <laughs> and some 
especially if you're, you know, young, it's awkward. You, you might be in charge of people that are older than you that have, you know, more seniority than you in, in different ways, um, greater status or power. Um, so it's, it's something that most of us, I think, can always improve in. And in doing so, we not only improve our own leadership, we are truly lifting others and, you know, whatever team or organization that you may be associated with. Yeah, it was particularly brilliant, your kind of analogous comparison of it to yoga. I was genius because <laughs> it clicked in my head. I was like, got it. This is a lifelong practice, right? <laughs> yes. I don't think that was my brilliant idea. I think that was either Matt's or uh, Kelly's. But yeah, I, I steal whatever I can when I talk to people. That's the great fun of, of books, you know, that there's a lot oh, of grind, yeah. but, but that's not, the fun. Yeah. It's such a great book. There's so many great stories. But that that helps me because as a doctor, it's so easy to try to just put everything in a box. So you're going to diagnose this patient, you're going to treatment plan, and you're going to then prescribe, you know, some sort of course of action. Maybe it's surgery. And then it, it, you're kind of done with that. Or you buy a new piece of technology and you kind of check it off your list. But, uh, you know, practicing radical candor like practicing yoga it's not something you win. You never check it off the list, right? It's a lifelong pursuit. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I do think that there's, um, you know, I, I truly believe that this is an area that I hope all organizations and leaders are really focusing on, because I think it's, uh, if you bake it into the culture, it is so incredibly helpful. Um, but like yoga, you know, there's going to be some awkward poses and some falling down and some... <laughs> You know, you may need even someone to pick you up kind of uh, or prop you up occasionally. But, um, yeah, I I think that that's one thing that, you know, if you're a parent, if you're a leader in any way, shape or form, that's something that probably we can all, you know, continue to strive to do better on and see results. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Dr. Burleson here. You've heard that real estate should be a part of every investor's portfolio, but maybe you're unsure where to start. My good friend and colleague, Dr. David Phelps, leads an investor community that has ditched the traditional Wall Street model for the stability of real estate assets. They are called Freedom Founders, and they do real estate really, really well. David's Freedom Blueprint reveals exactly how much you need to retire. Some of my top clients have done the program. They speak highly of David and his Freedom Blueprint. With the certainty of their passive real estate investments, Freedom Founders members are free to spend more time with family or even leave the practice altogether. David has put together some special resources for my listeners. To access, just text Dustin to 972-203-6960 or go to freedomfounders.com forward slash Burleson. And now back to the program. Absolutely. I think of the, the strongest leaders, organizations, even politicians, they, they seem to have surrounded themselves with people that can have this sort of interaction, right? Not just a bunch of people placating to the leader, but actually giving honest, sometimes uncomfortable feedback. Yeah. And I think you're touching on something that's really important. So, you know, Kim has this lovely, you know, two by two. And one of the quadrants is this idea of ruinous empathy. So uh, almost all, I shouldn't say, but like well over 80% or 85%, I think is what she told me, 
of errors, you know, tend to be in the ruinous empathy at quadrant, which is, you know, I, I care personally, but I find it awkward to challenge directly, or I don't want to hurt you. Um, and so, you know, it, that, but what we need to keep in mind is that that person like feedback is a gift. And if they never hear it, then unfortunately, you know, they're going about their career without, with really negative effects. And actually the first person, I did not know the term. I didn't know radical candor. It was my first exec ed experience. uh, And I was teaching in a healthcare program, chief hospital administrators. And, you know, one of them shared it, you know, that he, their hospital had just started 360 feedback. And he said, I never knew that people hated me. And he said, like, I was just training people the way that I was trained. And you felt sorry for him because he was probably 60, you know, maybe a little older and uh, truly cared, obviously. But he, you know, he came off with a little bit of a military like direct tone. And, you know, I think that maybe over the years, too, it could be that that didn't sit well with people. Uh, But you know, generally it's just, it was sad, but like he worked at it. So he did improve and saw people changing as a result. And um, he actually inspired the conclusion of Mastering Civility, the doctor that kind of, um, you know, worked at it basically and saw very different, um, you know, responses to him as a person even. But it was someone that got that in many respects way too late in life. Yeah, I love that story. And it's and I have worked in many places where this was the case. And I didn't know that phrase, the culture of ruinous empathy, but they just didn't want to hurt your feelings. Mm-hmm. And then the worst, I think, is in they wouldn't, there would be no corrective feedback or any feedback, really, let alone weekly. There were, I don't think there were any check-ins <laughs> until there was like an annual performance review. And then it was like, whoa, where did all this come from? Yeah, exactly. So, and people will remember it better. They, you know, will respond to it better. I think also like over the years, people were accustomed more to getting feedback in different ways, you know, just like our phones are always on. And so I think that there's an appetite for, we want that feedback and ideally instantaneous or pretty quick. So I do think that idea, and I think it reinforces the idea that like, you, you know, it's a regular ongoing thing. And so it's, it's not this fear of sitting through an annual performance review and not knowing and not remembering what they're talking about, you know, that they're citing someone wrote down about 10 months ago. So um, there's so many benefits to the point that you're making around, you know, kind of having it on a regular basis. Yeah, I want to highlight some of those because they're. This is now where the uh, the pure capitalists in the room will get excited because there's <laughs> some really really compelling data on what happens when you go through the book and you and you examine the six principles or characteristics of companies that are getting this right and building community. When employees start to thrive, things really happen, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so in across, you know, kind of a number of outcomes, uh, as you alluded to, so like performance goes up, engagement, you know, skyrockets, really, and people are much more likely to stay with the organization. Uh, people, you know, give more, so they're doing things that it maybe don't show up in a lot of ways, but certainly help whether it's patients and or other employees and caregivers feel better about things. So 
um, yeah, people just show up differently when they have a sense of thriving or even are working around those who are thriving. Because, I mean, as you get into the data, and this is others' data, although we have data on, you know, civility spreads in networks. So, you know, small actions can make a big difference to others. But uh, it's really interesting how, like, others' moods and, you know, data from everything as you know, professional cricket teams to, you know, in the, you know, kind of standard workplace about how others' moods, happiness, sense of thriving, that affects others in meaningful ways and changes the shape of our days and really our lives. Exactly. Yeah. I just wanted to highlight for those that think Christine and I are sitting here around the campfire singing Kumbaya. This is all just like (laughs) warm fuzzies. I mean, it's directly impacting profitability, sales, employee productivity. So I, I mean, Obviously, I, I love that, but it also helps, yeah. I think, that you're building a business that's more sustainable. Um, you highlight in, in companies that thrive, there was one particular, um, I guess, driving force. And I want to mention that because it was ahead of a lot of other really significant driving forces. And the word I'm looking for was meaning. I think this goes mm-hmm. back to the, the research you did with Tony Schwartz. You found that meaning, quote, was the number one driver of thriving at work. And I'm just curious, you know, could, what, what's the power of that? What does that mean? to create a place, a community where there's a sense of meaning? Well, I think it's that you matter uh, and that you're, I think of it as um, providing a sense of purpose and a sense of, yeah, your contribution, you know, that is significant in some way that touches you at a pretty deep level, I think. And uh, it's so important. And, you know, it really makes or breaks your days, I think. And the good news is that there are a lot of ways to encourage and remind people of meaning because, you know, even if you're working as an accountant in healthcare or something, you know, it's, it's how are you impacting people's lives that, you know, don't have to worry about certain things because you're doing things responsibly and, um, you know, timely and things like that. But it's, and you work for an organization that is saving lives and helping people live, you know, higher quality of life and things like that. So, you know, telling stories from the inside, telling stories from the outside, bringing in patients, let's say, to um, provide, uh, you know, a, a story that inspires hanging cards around thank you notes and things like that. I always see it doctor's offices, which is nice. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are so many ways to kind of provide meaning, but I think the big picture is like, what are you doing that you, that touches you and that, you know, makes you feel like you're doing something worthwhile. And, um, so, you know, usually that's not tied to anything financially it's, and it can be very broad or it could be, you know, one person, one three-year-old, one five-year-old, you know, one parent, uh, who you changed their life because of your care. Yeah. And, and it it goes right into the next, uh, kind of principle, I think. And it, it, you use a company that I love because I've, study them and probably uh, work you've done with them. And that's the Motley Fool on building a culture around trust. Can we talk about, and now that we've kind of gotten people's interest with meaning and, and purpose, you know, what's it like to work in a high trust company versus a low trust company? Uh, unbelievable. I mean, Tom Gardner, uh, he says it best. I mean, he talked about it so eloquently, but he, uh, 
really talks about the idea of like what trust gives you is speed of doing things. So um, it allows for collaboration in a really positive way, but a quick way. Like I would think that would apply to healthcare. <laughs> you know, you just, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, you know, think about how this translates exactly, but yeah. And so, you know, for Tom, but also for across industries, you really see Stephen Covey has a wonderful book called The Speed of Trust. But again, that idea of it's so much more efficient to do things, um, much less the fact that we achieve so much better when there is a sense of trust. And so um, the other thing that I just because Stephen Covey wrote a great follow up book that's recent is called Trust and Inspire. And it's fantastic. And so, you know, what he's arguing, I believe in, which is moving from command and control type style to trust and inspire. And so I think that that's another way to kind of frame the importance of this. Um, but yeah, Tom just, uh, Gardner just really believes that like trust is at the forefront. And if you build everything around that, you know, there's just so many benefits that flow because of that. And so one of the neat things and I wrote more about this example in the Mastering Civility book, uh, Tom and those at the Motley Fool are friends. And so I've been, you know, kind of learning from them for a while now, but uh, one of the things that he did, which I thought was so neat, was he challenged his employees to learn everyone's name. So because his idea was like, if you know their name, like you're kind of feel more comfortable and you're a little bit more invested, maybe. And uh, just that there was something about that, that he felt like there'd be a tangible difference and it would show up in all different sorts of ways. And so uh, I think that like you can start really small is my point. <laughs> like. Yep. And that goes a long way to building community, um, but also just scoring a ton of business wins. And, you know, I, the first time I met Tom was he was presenting at a Google rework conference. And, you know, to your point of their financial implications about this, his whole talk was about how culture, you know, eats strategy for breakfast kind of thing. But he said, even if you just, you know, you might think that they have the same place at the table, you know, it matters. And what I thought was really neat was that, you know, they, Bonley Fool, are investing in companies, you know, in large part, they're paying attention to the culture. And so he's been able to really show, uh, at least big picture, that culture matters and there's a great return on investment. And so, you know, I've, I, I buy into everything that I've learned from him around that. And um, it's hard to get the exact financial metrics, but um, they certainly, he's certainly has a lot of persuasive arguments on that. Yeah, I, I love that part of the book. We, we could probably do a whole semester course just on, just on that. It's, it's really good. And we'll include in the show notes the links to both of Stephen Covey's books. And I'm so excited to see that. We saw it in our own practices before I sold those, and I just kind of teach part-time now. Um, the kind of top-down leadership of, you know, this is what we're going to do, and here's who's going to do it. It just doesn't work. It, it never really worked that well anyways. But the building trust where the, the team says – I know why we want to do this. And, and we came up with a solution and, and here we go. You're right. I, it goes so much faster when they trust that this is something that's going to benefit them and everyone in the company. It's just really powerful. 
Yeah, I think that they're so much more willing to talk to others too, or to seek answers. Um, you know, I would imagine that things like, uh, you know, patient safety um, goes way up when there's trust, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there I've learned so much from hearing about how like in cultures where there is high trust, high psychological safety, you know, you'll have nurses and um, healthcare staff that are willing to speak up at, at crucial moments, you know, before surgery about, you know, wrong dosage um, based on the patient's weight kind of thing. And, you know, th that's uncommon in some environments, like people would have fear to do that. And uh, so I think that those type of um, examples too go a long way to saying like, we want this, you know, and you can trust us that we're not going to take it out on you that, you know, will support you, those kind of things. Yeah, I 100%. We've seen that at Children's Mercy where I teach in the university. It's, it's I mean, it's literally life-changing in healthcare. You could save a life by having the radical candor and the, and the comfort and trust with the people you're around is to just call a timeout and say, hey, let's double check this. And no one's ego is hurt where even I'm, I've not been in practice that long, but going on 20 years, I mean, 20 years ago, you wouldn't question the chief surgeon. I mean, you just wouldn't. And now yeah. I've seen I've seen better progress in that in that area. Uh, I, I I love how the book's organized because I think the first section, the first, you know, kind of what and 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 why of of mastering community and the second part is really how to go do this and i'd love to talk about um that's kind of the sixty four thousand dollar question right for listeners who are uh, too young to know what the sixty four thousand dollar question is go google it it's an old tv show <laughs> <laughs> um you know for the listeners saying i get it uh i i, I understand i've read the principles i, I want to do this i want to affect change in my organization the big question is, you know, what should we do? You know, where do we start? I I think that you hit on a lot of the points. I mean, um, I think trust is, is huge. Like the, you know, building that. Um, I think one area, like I think of respect, like these small moments as, you know, just kind of building elements of then we feel comfortable being radically candid, let's say. Uh, I think, you know, this idea of uniting people from the start helps to build trust. So I really like that. I like the example of, you know, Phil Jackson as an MBA coach, you know, kind of uh, getting people to meet in a film room every, you know, day before practice. And they're not talking about offense and defense or certain plays or strategies. It was all about like caring and sharing, really. Like they were covering other topics and just, getting to know each other. And I think that idea of connecting at that level, which Steve Kerr talked about, like it was such a close knit tribe. And he felt like that was Phil Jackson's kind of recipe for success was he had the ability to create a tribe like environment where people felt a sense of camaraderie. And that was true just as strongly for the stars, the Michael Jordans, as it was to the 12th player on the bench. Um, they felt just as part of the team. And that, you know, there's a whole market on trying to create belonging and inclusion and all of that these days and community. And so I think that, you, you know, uniting is a huge part of it. And so it's, it's kind of making those connections. And that, again, serves to build trust. The respect serves to build trust. Um, when you have trust, you can 
unleash more and more, you know, uh, Aman Botani, who's the CEO of GoDaddy, I liked his idea of like, even if you have to get comfortable, you know, it's almost like letting go a little bit, little bit, but like a chain almost, you know, kind of thing, um, or a leash that, that that's, you know, something that you could do. Uh, so work your way into, um, you know, go moving from uncomfortable with this to a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more comfortable, that kind of thing. But through the trust, you'll, I think, get more radical candor, um, you know, along the way, meaning helps a lot. I think, you know, it in, infuses a sense of thriving for people and just generally, you know, caring about people, uh, you know, that may have been as perhaps a better title than boost well-being, but it, it really comes down to like, how do you take care of your employees or the people in your community? Um, there's a lot of focus, I feel like, in that chapter. I mean, certainly Marriott, it talks about purpose and opportunity and things like that, and then community. But uh, I think like the physical well-being is a, a strong part of both the Marriott example and the Motley Fool stuff. Like the, you know, Motley Fool had a, a wellness coach, you know, for when they were super small. So so I think, you know, caring, like if I were bo to boil it down to one word, which I would really, as you can see, struggle with, uh, Doug Conant, you know, with a friend who turned around Campbell's with touch points, he talks about like, if he had to boil the book down to one word, it would be like caring, you know, for a leader. I so. love that. Yeah, I, I was so, I kind of forgotten about the Marriott and Starwood mm -hmm. merger and how astronomically well that went which as you know and maybe the listeners don't um is really really rare <laughs> that, yeah. that, that 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 went that well if they want to dig into it it's, i scribbled notes in the margins of all my books it's on page 20, 124 to 125 the marriott's take care program is just it, truly a wonderful example of how to do this right and how most companies uh, unfortunately and in, in, in mergers and acquisitions get it wrong um but because of the culture, they, it's so hard to align the, the two cultures. So it's a great case study in the book. So thank um, you. Yeah, it's really, really, really fantastic. I should highlight or at least get your opinion. I, I feel like a lot of doctors and leaders listen to this, but their employees listen as well. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. not all of them, but what would you say to the employee listening? Say, you know, I'm really not seeing this. And my, do you have to be in a leadership position to do some of this? I guess I'm kind of, no, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think that, you know, in an ideal world, we have role models that live whatever the values are. And certainly these things that we've talked about so far, but uh, you know, I, I would like to think uh, these things can grow you know, from people anywhere and you want to start. And so many of them, it, they are contagious. You know, I mean, I think the good news is most of these things end up feeling good. I mean, even radical candor where, you know, you might have some awkward moments or <laughs> it might be uncomfortable, might be tough to hear if you're the receiver, but ultimately, you know, if we frame it as a gift and you're growing and developing and ascending like that idea of like never ending ascension, uh, that I think helps and goes a long way. So um, I hope that that's an optimistic message. But the good news is that you can start anywhere and this stuff matters. And, you know, I use respect as an example, but we know that these small things that people do, including like the tone that they use even, but the highs, the acknowledging, um, you know, all of that, it, it shows up. And I love just as a quick example, the 10-5 way, which is Austin healthcare system, where if you were within 10 feet, 
you know, you make eye contact and smile five feet, you say hello and civility spreads, patient satisfaction scores rose as, as did patient referrals. And I think that that just shows the power of these small touch points that we can have with one another uh, that make a difference and it show up in a variety of, of different positive outcomes. I love it. I could talk to you all day about the book. Unfortunately, we don't have that much time, but it's been so nice speaking to you. Where can listeners learn more about you and what you're writing and, and what you've been up to? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, so I try to post there. Uh, I have a website, christineporath.com, uh, and I'm on Twitter, PorathC. Uh, and yeah, I think that uh, those are the primary places. And then, you know, I try to write as much as possible and, and just get the word out there and on various podcasts. And so appreciate you featuring the work. Yeah, I feel like you've been very busy. We, I see your name <laughs> everywhere. I'm just so honored we got to speak to you on the program. So thank you, Christine. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on another episode of The Burlesome Box. If you have questions about this episode or any episode of the program, I'd love to hear from you. Go to theburlesomebox.com and click the contact button where you can share your thoughts, ask questions, and learn how a Burleson Box membership can work for you and your organization. Be sure to listen each month for new resources. And until next time, remember the words of Groucho Marx, who said, quote, I find television very educating. Every time somebody turns on the set, I go into the other room and read a book. <laughs> Until next time, make it a great month. I'll see you right here for another episode of The Burleson Box. Are you trying to increase your treatment plan close rates while also increasing revenue? How can you do both for your dental practice without burning out an already burdened staff? The answer? Remote dental monitoring. You need a trusted HIPAA-compliant app that helps you and your staff work smarter, not harder. This needs to be an easy-to-use, easy-onboard app that your patients will find fun to use and will increase their engagement and success with aligners. You need the InHand Dental app. The InHand Dental app allows you to engage with your patients in real time, send individual and batched messages, and solve problems to increase compliance without using up chair time. The result? Happy patients, happy staff, and happy practices. With more revenue and the ability to do more starts. With prices starting as low as $149 a month, it's perfect for a growing aligner business. Check us out and learn more at InHandDental.com. Plus, mention Burleson for a 20% off discount on your subscription when you contact us. That's InHandDental.com.